we're going we're gonna to be doing something a little differently today. Typically, during this time, uh, we preach through one passage of Scripture, and we walk through it word by word and phrase by phrase and line by line to really understand what it means. And we're going to do that today, walk through this passage, but we're also going to walk through two other passages in Romans, hopefully to get a, an idea of the broad message of the book of Romans, this astounding letter that we find in the New Testament. So we're going to start in Romans 1, and we're going to jump forward to Romans 10, and then we're going to jump forward one more time to Romans 15, and I'll fill in the gaps in between, Lord willing. So Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is where we will begin. And there we read Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the letter to the Romans. Pray that you would guide us to understand and love and enjoy this letter today. And that as we dive into this letter, we would dive deep into your love, not just for people that look like us, but for people all around the world. It's for your name we pray. Countless people in our city and in our nation walk through life feeling like there's just something more that they ought to be expecting. So many people today, maybe people even here in this room, feel directionless or feel like we, we, we should look for more from our life and more purpose. That there should be something larger that we're living for and working towards. We ask the question, does God really have a plan for our life, for my life, and does it really matter? And that's a great question to ask. Does God really have a plan for my life? But it's a little bit misguided because God's plan is so much bigger than any one individual. God has plans not just for each one of us here today, and he does have a plan for each one of you here today, but he also has a plan that's so much bigger. He has a plan for the entire world. Over the last few weeks, we've been walking through a sermon series called Expect More, and we've been discussing how our view of the church is often far too small. We miss out on so many of the blessings that God has for us to enjoy in his design for the church because we settle for a surface-level engagement with our church family. And today, I want to continue to encourage you to expect more out of the church because the church is not just a show that you come to on Sunday morning. The church is God's mission force, and he has a plan through the church to change the entire world. And that's an astounding mission and an astounding message. Expect more from the church, friends, because this isn't just a club where we can gather and feel comfortable this is a missionary training facility. This is God's plan to reach the nations. So I want you to expect more from, from the church, and I also want you to expect more for the world. Because while there is plenty of sin and suffering and darkness in the world, God has a plan to invade it with the hope of the risen Christ. I want to lay out for you today a vision for the whole church working together to reach the whole world. And that's why we're sending the Derby Shires today. If I were to give you one main idea to take home today, here's what I want it to be. We must send missionaries to all nations because Jesus is the glorious Savior King of all nations. And as I said, we'll see this big idea unfold throughout three passages in the book of Romans. And three ideas from each of those passages. The first one Jesus is king everywhere. Jesus is king everywhere. The letter to the Romans paints this picture of a risen Christ who has authority, not just over the people that claim him as their own, 
but over every individual and over every nation, over every people and every place. Jesus Christ is king everywhere. There is no one and nowhere outside of his kingly reign. So look with me at Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul, writing one of the most astounding works of literature in the entire history of the world, starts not by extolling his own greatness, but by extolling the greatness of the Lord Jesus. He calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus. So right from the starting line, Paul is making clear that this is not a letter about himself. Paul is making clear that he's not the hero, that he's not the boss, that he's not in charge, but that Christ is the hero. And friends, I hope that that's your view of your own lives, that Christ is the hero and we stand as his servants. We're sending our missionaries today, the Derbyshires, and we're sending them today, not because they're the heroes, but because Christ is the hero and they go out as his ambassadors. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Oh, may that kind of servant-hearted humility before the risen Christ control all of our lives today. Not living for our own comfort, but for his glory. A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. An apostle is a messenger. And what message does Paul carry? He goes on and he describes it. Set apart for the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son. So Paul goes out as a messenger of the gospel. The word gospel literally just means good news. But Paul isn't just a positive motivational speaker going out and sharing any good news that he can find. It's a specific good news. It's the good news of God. It's not Paul's message. It's God's message. It's not our message. It's God's message. And this message of God has been his plan from before the foundations of the earth. And he's been declaring it and promising it from the very beginning. It's the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So sometimes you'll hear people say, well, in the Old Testament, God is angry, and in the New Testament, he's happy. The Old Testament shows us a God of wrath, and the New Testament shows us a God of love. And that's not true, friends. Throughout Scripture, we see a picture of God as a glorious Savior King, working to reach all nations for the glory of his Son. He promised this gospel, this good news beforehand through his prophets. And what's the content of this message? Sure, it's been around for a long time, but what is the message? Paul's certainly hyping it up, isn't he? It's the gospel. It's God's gospel. It's the promised gospel. It's the Old Testament gospel. It's the New Testament gospel. What's the content of this message? It's the gospel concerning his son. And who is this son? He's the Lord Jesus. The gospel that Paul carries, that we carry to all the world, is a message about Christ, about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. But who is he? Well, Paul doesn't leave that up for for guessing. He goes on and he describes, verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So how does Paul describe this Christ. He describes him as the son of David. Who is David? You might know this from your Old Testament. David was one of the mightiest heroes and kings of the nation of Israel, which was God's people. And because of David's faithfulness and because of God's goodness, God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He promised David that one of his descendants would sit on a throne in Jerusalem And reign, not just over Israel, but over all nations. And that king would sit on that throne, not just for a lifetime, but for all times. So God makes this promise to David, and this becomes the controlling hope and theme of all of the people of Israel. From that day forward, all of Israel is looking forward to this king, the son of David, who would sit on a throne, rule over not just Israel, but all nations, not just for a lifetime, but for all times. The eternal king exercising universal dominion over all of the earth. 
And he's a wonderful king. He's a gracious king. He doesn't rule with an iron fist. He rules with grace and justice and mercy. He calls even rebels to his throne. He's astounding. And when we get to the New Testament, the very first chapter of the New Testament, the gospel according to Matthew boldly declares that Christ is this promised son of David. He is the king, not just over Israel, but all nations, not just for a lifetime, but for all times. Jesus Christ is king every time, everywhere. But he's not just the son of David. How on earth could a mere man be worthy to sit on that throne? He's not a mere man. He's not just the son of David. He's also the son of God. Verse 4. This son was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Christ is not just a man. He is fully man, but he is also fully God. And he has always been. He's always been fully God. And he proved that when he rose from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by his resurrection from the dead. How do we know that Jesus is God? Because he rose from the dead. Jesus Christ, the only one who lived a perfect life, the only one that could ever possibly be worthy to sit on the throne of David, never sinned. He was always kind. And his life climaxed with his own execution. That's not the way the hero's story is supposed to end. The just, righteous hero being murdered brutally, publicly, excruciatingly, shamefully. But Christ, friends, Christ was not punished for his own crimes. He had none. He was being charged and punished for our sins. Christ died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, for my sins, for your sins. We have failed to submit to God as the king of all nations. We have rebelled against him. We have accrued a great debt, a great jail sentence. Eternal death and damnation was our lot, and Christ took it on himself, died for sinners. That's not the way the hero's story is supposed to end. And friends, that's not the way that Jesus' story ends because the son of David had to rise because he had to sit on that throne, not just for a lifetime, but for all time. Christ rose victoriously from the dead. His story is not over and it will never be over. He is still raised from the dead. He is still seated on the throne of David. He is still reigning over all nations. You could say it 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ is king everywhere. And you can say it today. Jesus Christ is king everywhere. And 84 quadrillion years from now, you'll still be able to say it. Jesus Christ will still be king. There is no election that can thwart him. There is no in indifference to him that could possibly stymie his reign and power. His reign is endless. His power is limitless. His glory is wonderful. So worship him, friends. He's wonderful. He is the king who alone has conquered death. And if you trust in him, then you too can conquer death. Because everyone that looks to this risen Christ in faith will be raised to life with him. It's an astounding gospel. And who is he? You see in verses 3 and 4, Paul is just ramping up to this awesome conclusion. He's the son. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. He has the spirit of holiness. He's raised from the dead. Who is he? He's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord means king. He's the king everywhere. And verse 5, what does this king do? Why is Paul writing all this to the Romans? Verse 5, through whom... Through this Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord, the King everywhere, through whom we, Paul, and the Romans, the, the Apostle, the Minister of God, and the whole congregation, we have received grace and apostleship. So Christ gives his people gifts. He gives his people grace. Grace is God's free, unearned, undeserved, undeservable love. And Christ gives that to all of his people 
For what purpose? Why does Christ give his people grace? We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Christ has shown you grace for a specific purpose, friends, his own glory among all nations. And of course, that makes sense the way that we just read Romans 1 through Romans 1, 1 through 4. We've seen this picture of Christ, the son of David, ruling on a throne over all nations. Of course, we as his people have a mission to bring the good news of his death and resurrection to all nations. Of course. And he sends his messengers like Paul to all nations. But again, everyone is involved. We have received grace to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. A few minutes ago, we sang, we go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. How on earth could we sing, we go to all the world, when not every person in this room will go and cross cultures as a missionary? Because we all have a part to play. This is why Christ has saved all of us. We have received grace to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, for his glory, his fame among all nations. Salvation is not just about getting out of hell. It's, it's a commissioning to live for Christ's glory, not your own. It's about living for the king now. He forgave your rebellion, and he has entrusted you with his message of, of forgiveness of sinners to all nations. So we live for his mission now because he's the king. We're the servants. Jesus Christ is king everywhere. And we must send missionaries to all nations because Jesus Christ is the glorious Savior King of all nations. His reign extends over all of the earth, and so must our mission. Over the last few weeks, we've heard some devastating news about Puerto Rico. Three million Americans without food, without water, without power. It's devastating. And I can tell you that up the street, the White House and the president have been working around the clock to send aid and help to the people of Puerto Rico. Why? Because they have a responsibility to the people of Puerto Rico. The, the people of Puerto Rico are within their domain of authority and care. And so it would be completely unjust and unthinkable for the president to just say, ah, they're far away. They don't have that many votes. We'll just kind of let them, let them take care of themselves. It's fine. No, that would, be, that would be completely unthinkable, friends. And in the same way, it's completely unthinkable for Christians to be indifferent about the nations because Christ is king there. He has more authority over Thailand and Malaysia and Myanmar and Laos and Vietnam than, than anyone has, than the president has over Puerto Rico, than we have over our own homes. He has limitless authority. We must work to send missionaries because Jesus is the glorious Savior King of all nations. It's not enough to say, out of sight, out of mind. It's not enough to say, there's work to do here, because there's also work to do there, friends. And friends, if you're not a Christian here today, King Jesus has authority over you. And you have two options. You can run as a rebel, or you can come to his feet and bow in submission and find life and forgiveness. Bow before the King of Kings, friends. Submit to him, because he's the king, we're the servants. And he is not a king who rules with an iron fist. He is a king who extends grace and mercy to all nations. Brings us to our second point. Flip ahead to Romans chapter 10. We'll look at verses 13 to 15. And we'll see that Jesus is king everywhere and Jesus needs to be trusted everywhere. We're all guilty of sin. And the only way that we can be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. So what's the context? What are we skipping over in these nine chapters? In Romans 1 through 3, Paul lays out this stunning logical case that all kinds of people, specifically Jewish and Gentile people, are sinful. 
are condemned by their sin in rebellion against God. Not friends of God, but enemies of God. And then in Romans 3 through 8, Paul lays out another compelling vision. While all kinds of people are sinful, all kinds of people can be saved. All kinds of people can be forgiven by Christ. All kinds of people can be purified by Christ. All kinds of people will be brought home to worship Christ for eternity. All kinds of people are sinful and all kinds of people can be saved by Christ. That's Romans 3 through 8. But then in Romans 9, there's an interesting conundrum. Because Romans 9 introduces this question, well, not every individual will be saved. So what's the difference between someone who's not saved and someone who is? And Romans 9 gives one answer to that question. The people that God has determined to save, he will save. The individuals. But then Romans 10 explains how it happens. How does God save these individuals? How can anyone be saved? Romans 10 answers the question. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, again, that means king, Jesus Christ is king everywhere. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can you be saved, friends? Those of you here who are plagued with guilt, you've walked in immorality this week. You've cheated and lied. You've lived for your own pleasure instead of Christ's glory. How can you be saved, you filthy sinner? I'm a filthy sinner. How could I be saved? How could you be saved? Not by being good enough. Not by cleaning up your act. Not by coming to church. Not by going overseas as a missionary. None of those things can save you. The only way that we can be saved is by calling upon the name of the Lord. Imagine a child drowning in a pool, and they, they look up to the lifeguard, and with their last breath, they belt out, help me, save me, before they plunge under the water. And that's what calling upon the name of the Lord is like. It's not doing some religious deed so that God notices you and looks with favor upon you. It's like drowning in your sin and mire and, and disgusting worldliness that we've all been plagued by and calling out to God, save me, calling upon the name of the Lord, calling upon Jesus, looking to him as the true and better lifeguard who can save you not just from a pool but from eternal damnation, the pool of his wrath which he has fully drank on the cross. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It's a foolproof remedy. It's a never-ending equation, 100% guaranteed. But this solution creates a problem in itself. Because if all you need to do to be saved is call upon the name of the Lord, you need to hear the name of the Lord. If there was some illness plaguing the world and I'd figured out the medicine to solve it, to cure it forever, foolproof, no side effects, well, that's great news. But everyone needs to take that medicine. Every infected person has to take that medicine to be free, to be cured. How can they call upon the name of the Lord if they've never heard about him? And that's where Paul goes in Romans ten fourteen. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And now, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So notice here there's a chain of events. Someone is sent to be a preacher. That preacher goes and preaches. People hear the preacher. Those hearers believe that preached message. And those believers call upon the name of the Lord, and then they get saved. You see the chain of events. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling, being saved. It's a chain of events. And if one link in that chain is broken, then no one can get saved. No one can get saved. How, how can they hear upon how can they call on him of whom they have not believed? So, so if nobody hears, therefore no one can believe, and therefore no one can get saved. And if no one preaches, therefore no one will heal, no one will hear. And therefore no one will believe, and therefore no one will call, and therefore no one will be saved. And if no one sends that preacher, 
therefore, no one will preach. And therefore, no one will hear. And therefore, no one will believe. And therefore, no one will call. And therefore, no one will be saved. Every link in the chain is absolutely indispensable. Every link is absolutely indispensable, including the sending, the first step in that chain. Because how can they preach unless we send them? In a sermon like this and on a Sunday like this, it can be tempting to think that there's the missionaries and then there's the junior varsity. There's the missionaries and then there's the sophomores. And that's not the case. Because the missionaries can't do their work, they can't do the preaching unless we send them. We celebrate the Derbyshires today as we send them, not because they're the heroes, but because they're fulfilling their unique role. We send them, they preach, people in Thailand and around Southeast Asia will hear, believe, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And we know that that's true. It's a guarantee. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ will always fulfill his end of the bargain. The end of the chain is solid. It will never break. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So we, therefore, have a responsibility to faithfully send and to radically go. As it is written, verse 15 continues, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, that's interesting. If I were to use an image for preaching, a part of the body to represent preaching, probably wouldn't have chose feet. Feet don't talk. I'm not holding the microphone down here. Because feet don't talk. What do feet do? They walk. They carry. They go. How can they call upon him of whom they have never heard? How can they call upon him unless people go with their feet and preach with their mouths. They can't. No one will get saved unless some feet move. We must send missionaries to all nations because Jesus Christ is the Savior King of all nations. No one can enter into this saving reign unless they are invited to it. So we must extend it widely and broadly. So if you're not a Christian, you're being invited right now. Come to the feast. Come to know this king. Call upon his name and be saved. Stop drowning in sin. That's not fun. That's not enjoyable. That's not joyful. You're suffering. You're, you're sorrowful. Call upon the name of the Lord and he will pull you out forever. You've heard the invitation, friends. Those of you that aren't Christians, you've heard the invitation and now you're accountable for it. What about those of us who have called upon the name of the Lord? Well, friends, we need to be thankful that someone's beautiful feet carried the gospel to us. We need to be thankful for that. And, and I have news for you. Jesus Christ did not live in Alexandria. He was not a white dude who worked at a D.C. firm and spoke English which means that the gospel never could have made it to you unless someone at some point in history between Christ's resurrection and today crossed cultures to bring it to you. So we need to walk in thankfulness that God in his mercy have saved us, and we frequently thank God for that, but we also need to walk in thankfulness that missionaries hundreds of years ago who we will never know their names until we meet them around the throne of glory crossed cultures, left behind their friends and their families and the comforts of their homeland to go to people that look like you and I. It's astounding. It's astounding. Let's thank God for that. So friends, the only way that anyone can be saved is by hearing, believing, and calling upon the name of the Lord. That's why we're planting a church in San Antonio. Because we want people to hear and believe and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That's why we are obsessed with sharing our faith in D.C. Because the only way for people in D.C. to be saved is to hear 
the gospel of God, to believe and to call upon the name of the Lord. But that just goes to show there's a lot of lost people here in our own country that need to hear this message. So why should we worry about sending missionaries? Because the missionary task is unique. The goal, in one sense, is the same. People hearing, believing, and calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. But the work is radically different, and the motivation is dramatically different. Which brings us to our third point. Flip ahead a few more pages to Romans chapter 15. And here we see Jesus needs to be proclaimed everywhere. Jesus is king everywhere. Jesus needs to be trusted everywhere. And Jesus needs to be proclaimed everywhere. Our concern, friends, is not just that as many people as possible hear this message of Jesus, but that all kinds of people hear this message of Jesus. As many kinds of people as possible hear this message of Jesus. Remember our survey of, of the first 10 chapters in Romans, 1 through 3. All kinds of people are sinful and alienated from God. 3 through 8. All kinds of people can be saved but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so our goal is not just that as many people as possible hear the message of Jesus. Our goal is more than that. Our goal is also that as many kinds of people as possible can hear the message of Jesus. So Romans 15, verse 20. And thus, after all the beautiful exposition and theology and, and description of Jesus and all of his glory and wonder that Paul's given for the last 14 and a half chapters... He gets to his point, 1520, and thus, I make it my ambition, my goal. What is he aiming for? What is he aiming for? What is he going for? I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, think all the way back to one, that astounding message that Jesus Christ is king everywhere, crucified for sinners, risen from the dead, raised to life to sit on the throne of David forever. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where, he starts talking about geography, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul's goal in his life and in writing the letter to the Romans is the spread of the gospel to new geographic areas. Just look a few verses down if you're, if you're not sure about me. Because the reason that Paul is writing his letter to the, to the church at Rome is to ask for their support. Because he's going to do a new missionary work in a new place called Spain. Maybe you've heard of it. But at that point in history, no one in Spain had ever called upon the name of the Lord. Because none of them have ever believed in the Lord. Because none of them have ever heard in the Lord. Because no one had ever preached. Because no one had ever sent a preacher. And so Paul is saying, Romans, send me to Spain. I will go. I will preach. They will hear. By God's grace, they will believe. By God's grace, they will call. And by God's grace, they will be saved. Romans 15, 24. He lays that out explicitly. I hope to see you, the church in Rome, in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you. So he's, he's praying and asking the Romans to support his ministry in Spain. And he compares that ministry in verse 20 to building a house. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So when you build a house... There's some people here that work in construction, and I'm quaking in my boots because I don't know anything about this. But, but as, to the best of my knowledge, when you build a house, you lay a foundation. That's the first thing you do. It's the most important thing you do, from what I hear. And everything else comes after that. You build on that. You build on the foundation. And Paul wanted to go and lay foundations. He wanted to share the gospel for the first time in a cultural context. He wanted to see the first Christians come to faith. He wanted to plant the first church. 
Sometimes churches today are called First Baptist Church of XYZ. Paul literally wanted to plant the first church of Spain. And this work, this foundation-laying work is indispensable, just as a foundation is indispensable to the home. That's not to say that building on foundations isn't valuable because you can't live on a foundation in a house. If I I bought a house last year in November, if there was just a foundation, I would have paid a lot less for it because I can't live there. I wouldn't be safe. My family wouldn't be safe. My family would be vulnerable to the elements. It's not safe to live on a foundation. So foundation laying work isn't the end of the mission, but it's a crucial, indispensable part. That foundation work is unique. And what do we mean by foundation laying? Specifically, we mean preaching for the first time in a culture, planting the first churches, seeing the first converts, translating the Bible for the first time. And then after that, we do more work. Here in D.C., we're not doing foundation work. We're building on a foundation that was laid when the gospel first entered our culture. And that's good work, essential work. But why do we need to lay foundations? Why do we need to preach the gospel in new cultures, new contexts? Because otherwise, no one can call upon Christ. And if they don't call upon Christ, they can't be saved. There really is only one way to salvation, friends. You have to believe that or missionary sending will never make sense to you. If you think that the Buddhists in Thailand can be saved by being good Buddhists, none of this will make any sense to you and we are wasting our time here. But if Christ really is the only way, then we have to send missionaries to all nations because Christ is the Savior King of all nations. We need to lay new foundations. Barriers need to be crossed. Crossed. And for Paul, those barriers were primarily geographic. Because Paul lived in a very unique time in human history. He lived in the Roman Empire, where the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, controlled all of the known world, almost. Where people could go freely from place to place. Ideas could spread very rapidly and very freely. Because largely everyone spoke the same language or similar languages. There was a lot of shared culture. And so when Paul thinks about laying new foundations, he thinks primarily about geography. Today, there's a lot of other barriers. There's a lot of other barriers today. Do you know today in the world, there's over 7,100 languages spoken in the world. We read earlier in the service in Revelation 7 that Jesus will be praised by every tongue, by every language. Because he'll receive a unique glory in that diversity of worship. He'll be able to say, for eternity, I'm worthy of praise in the Rohingya language. I'm worthy of praise in the Ngata language. I'm worthy of praise in the Ake language. Because he'll be receiving that praise. He won't just be blowing smoke. He'll be, he'll be receiving it and celebrating it and exulting in it. He's worthy of praise from every language. But there's over 7,100 languages in the world today. Friends, you can't do anything about that unless you cross a culture and learn that language. It, it doesn't matter how eloquently you can say, Jesus Christ is Lord. No one of the billions of people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus, very, very few of them will understand that, no matter how eloquently you say it, because they don't speak English. They don't speak English. And so we send missionaries who will learn the language. Sometimes in customer service, people that are inexperienced with the deaf and hard of hearing will think that they can, they can help somebody if they just speak really loudly. And so sometimes you'll go to a store and you'll literally see like a clerk screaming at a deaf person. And the deaf person's like, I can't understand you, no matter how loudly you talk. Friends, the gospel has to cross cultures. The gospel has to be translated into new languages, and that's why we send missionaries. But also, language isn't the only barrier today. There's also over 17,000 nations in the world. And by nation, I don't mean a geopolitical nation state. There's a little less than 200 of those, depending on who you ask. A nation state is a political entity 
It's a government that reigns over a specific territory with legitimate authority. When we say nations, or when the Bible says nations, we read that earlier in chapter 1, Romans 1, we're working for the sake of his name among all the nations. It's not talking about geopolitical nation states. It's talking about a people group. Which, if you ask a foreign policy person, what's a nation? They'll probably say something like what I read on Wikipedia this week. A community of people formed on the basis of a combination of shared features, such as language, history, ethnicity, culture, and or society. Well, in Revelation 7, Jesus says he must be worshipped by every tribe. That means every tribe needs to hear. Every tribe needs to believe. Every tribe needs to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. We want to reach all nations. There's a lot of barriers in our world today. 17,000 nations. 7,100 languages. There's a lot of barriers that, need to cross and that we need to cross to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. So I want you to think about the world's population in three categories. We have a map that I'll show you. Think about the world's population in three categories. The first of those populations is what I call gospel access, or GA. These are the green dots on the map. These green places, these gospel access places, are characterized by the Bible in their language, churches in their vicinity, and Christians in their culture. An example of a a place like this would be Washington, D.C. Not everyone here in this city is a Christian, That's not what makes a dot green. But Christians are here, and Christians are working. And that means that people have access to the gospel. The second category is little gospel access, or LGA. You'll see this represented by yellow dots and orange dots. A lot of that in Southeast Asia. These little gospel access cultures are characterized by some Bible, the beginnings of Bible translation work in their language, the beginnings of church planting work in their vicinity, and a few Christians in their culture, typically less than 2%. An example of a little gospel access nation would be the Thai people of Thailand, where, where church planting work has begun, Bible translation work has begun, There are some Christians who, by God's grace, have been saved, but the gospel cannot continue to spread in those places without outside help. The third category of people on the planet today are zero gospel access, or ZGA. They're represented by red dots on this map. They're characterized by no Bible in their language no church in their vicinity, and zero Christians in their culture. They cannot call upon the name of the Lord and be saved because there is no Bible they could read, there is no book that they could receive that they could understand, there is no church that they can attend, there is no friend that could even share it with them informally. Because there are no Christians that even speak their language. Example of this, the Sikh people of Thailand. These are, pe- these are a, a tribe of people that live in villages throughout northwestern Thailand, in and around Chiang Mai, where we'll be sending the Derbyshires. There's over 21,000 Sikh people living in Thailand today. There is no Bible in their language. There are no Christians in their villages. There are no churches that they can attend. Their religion is a combination of Buddhism and spirit worship. That's what we meant when we sang earlier in the song, Facing a Task Unfinished, where other lords besides thee, besides thee, Lord, hold their unhindered sway where forces that defy thee still defy thee still today. That's the unfinished task, reaching these zero gospel access places. 
Because other lords, besides the true lord, the only one who can save, the king everywhere, other lords hold an unhindered sway. They don't even have an enemy. We cannot be indifferent about that. So what do we do? What should we do in a gospel access culture? Well, of course, we need to keep working to reach the lost here. But also, friends, we have an obligation to use our gifts and to use our resources for the good of those that have less, for the little gospel access and zero gospel access places. That's why we're sending the Derbyshires, friends. Because we want to use every ounce of our resources to send and support them as they work in an LGA place to reach ZGA people. What about little gospel access peoples? What does the work look like there? The task at hand is to train leaders and to strengthen churches, to finish Bible translation work. And friends, that's why we're sending the Derbyshires. We're sending them to Thailand, a little gospel access country, where Derby will be working on a theological training team. He'll be putting his education and his expertise to work to train church planters who will work throughout Thailand, reaching people like the sake, and also sending church planters throughout Southeast Asia. You see all that red and orange in that corner of the world? We're going to do something about that. That's why we're sending the Derbyshires. They're going to train church planters and send them to places like Myanmar and Malaysia and Vietnam and Laos. The task at hand in a little gospel access place is to train leaders, strengthen churches, finish Bible translation work. And what about a zero gospel access location? Friends, the task at hand there is to share the gospel for the first time, making the first disciples, planting the first churches, translating the Bible for the first time. To take that zero and bump it up to one, and then two, and then three, and then, Lord willing, 80. Who knows? That's the task at hand, and friends, that's why we're sending the Derbyshires to Thailand. You see the strategic place that they'll be having in the mission of God? Because like I said, Derby will be training church planters and sending them to these zero gospel access places. People like the sake, 21,000 people alive today who have never heard the name of Jesus, who cannot call upon him, and therefore cannot be saved. That's why we're doing this, friends. To reach the world. I'm going to invite the music team back up, and I want to ask you, what's your role in all of this? We stand now facing a task unfinished, what ought we to do? I want to give you three steps. Two of them are for everyone in, in this room. One of them is for some people in this room. So first, the two steps that are for everyone in this room. Number one is to come. Jesus Christ is king everywhere. Jesus Christ needs to be trusted everywhere. Jesus Christ needs to be proclaimed everywhere. So friends, come and bow in submission before the king of kings and the Lord of lords because there is no hope for you apart from him. Stop running from him. Stop floundering in sin. Stop rebelling against him. Live for his kingdom, not your own. Come. Number two, this is also for everyone in this room, is to send. Paul couldn't make it to Spain without the support of the Romans. And the other missionaries that we will send cannot go unless you, as their church, send them faithfully. This looks like a lot of different things. Praying for them regularly supporting their work financially, supporting them personally and individually. So maybe you could get involved in an Antioch team. Antioch teams are teams of church members built around our missionaries to support their work, to send them care packages, to pray for them, to fast for them. If you want to get involved in that, come find me before you leave today. The Derbyshires need more people on their team. All of us must come all of us must send. And finally, some of us must go. 
I don't believe, like I said, that every person here is called to lay down their lives long-term to labor among a little gospel access or zero gospel access people. But I do believe that there's more people in this room that have yet to raise their hands and say, I will go, here I am, send me. There are more people in this room that will go that have currently made themselves known to us. I believe that, friends. I believe that. And so maybe that's you today. Maybe you're saying, I want to go. Here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to put you on a plane tomorrow and say, good luck. We're going to partner with you over the next years and decades, because that's how long the work will take, friends, to translate the Bible, bring the gospel to, the, to, the, to a culture for the first time, to plant the first churches, train the first leaders. That's going to take decades in a cultural context. So the call to go is not a call to just kind of give up a week this summer or a few months and like, oh, maybe we'll see God do some cool things. I'm calling you to lay down your life long term. To go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled because no other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. If you are called to go, we will equip you, we will send you, we will support you every step of the way. Those Antioch teams, they're in place to make it as easy for you as possible to go because we don't want anything to stop you. Come, send, and go. Friends, I, I hope this is the last thing I'll say. One of the benefits of sending the Derby Shires from our own church is that many of you have gotten to know them. And if you haven't gotten to know them, then please do get to know them today. Join us for lunch and talk to them. And what you will find is that they are very normal people. This is the most motivating, commissioning sermon ever. They are very normal people. They are not heroes. They are not that special. They're normal people. Bethany went to college, and she has a mom and a dad, and she loves college football. Derby likes to read books. He likes to eat Flaming Hot Cheetos. He's a normal person. He's an ordinary, normal person. They are profoundly gifted, and that's why we're sending them. We don't want to send any wahoo who just says, oh, yeah, I'll go to the nations. No, like we want to send the best. We want to impoverish the church here by sending the best. They're normal people, friends, just like you. I'm a normal person. Maybe you like Flaming Hot Cheetos. Maybe you could be called to go. And friends, that's an astounding work. So whether long-term you find yourself living in a gospel access, little gospel access, or zero gospel access culture, we need to give ourselves to this work. We must send missionaries to all nations because Jesus is the glorious Savior King of all nations. May he find us faithful. Let's pray.